Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I'm your host, Stephen Peinecker, and I just want to welcome a very special guest, um, Taylor Drake. Uh, Taylor is a sixth generation um, Mormon, uh, born and raised in the Utah Valley. Uh, he served his mission in Japan. Um, he current res currently resides in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon, and he's a financial planner. And this is the very first book that he's written. It's called Joseph in the Gap. The Hidden History That Explains Mormonism's, Mormonism's Past, Present, and Future. Uh, Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. And I have to confess that I was oblivious to your channel and what you do until you contacted me and actually uh, phoned in at an interview that I was in a while back. But uh, in our subsequent conversations, I've been very gratified to, to get to know you and, and your work. And it's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you, Taylor. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. And so one of the things is like you had said, I called into a program, I was listening to uh, this YouTube channel, and they were they had you on as a guest. And it was live calling. So I actually called in and thought, okay, I got to get in touch with this guy. Um, we're going to get into the details why I called you because I think the direction you're going is a very interesting direction. Now, folks, I want to explain to you, uh, this channel is not an anti-Mormon channel. Never has been, never will be. This is a channel where we have conversations with people, adult conversations with people. We talk about the similarities that we have and also our differences, but we do it in a Christian way and in a way that we can just, uh, this can be a safe space for all aspects of the restoration. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have Taylor on. Now, most of you probably haven't heard of him. Um, and I want to introduce my audience to Taylor because he is an original thinker. And uh, I really was struck by some of the stuff that was in this book. So I thought, okay, I got to have this guy on. Now, typically, you know, this is a self-published book. And I've done a couple self-published authors. And in those cases, they've been fantastic uh, people. I actually had somebody who used to be Nathan Smith from Fair Mormon, I kind of vet this book for me. I said, you know, make sure this guy isn't a crackpot. And he said, no, he's not a crackpot. He's, he knows what he's talking about. And <laughs> oh, I, oh, that makes me feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think that's important for people to know. You know, I, I definitely don't just put anybody on here. I do want to put a lot of people on here, but not just anybody. Um, and so Taylor, I think let's just talk a little bit about what kind of got the ball rolling on this book. And that was you, you, you're, you have three sons. And I guess you said the oldest one has served a mission. And then you have the two who started, I guess, investigating things on the internet about Mormonism and its history. And it's, they started encounter, telling you about this information. And uh, how did you respond to that? Uh, well, initially, not very well. Um, you know, they were running into things like Mormon stories and Mormon think and um, various different other resources that would cause them to question their faith. And look, I grew up as a, as a total true blue TBM Mormon, um, as, you, as you told everybody, you know, sixth generation, Utah Valley, um, you know, oldest of six kids. I went on a mission, all of that. And when I started running, running into these issues that were being raised, you know, deep down inside, I, I had had experiences when I was a kid with the gospel um, on my mission that I just couldn't deny. There, there was something about the Book of Mormon. There's something about the gospel, right? 
But the way I responded was to research. And, you know, initially it was to debunk whatever anti-Mormon stuff that my kids were running into. But what I quickly found out was that a lot of the data was accurate, that it was true. Um, but I didn't stop there. I just, I kept digging. And, you know, the book is really the result of seven years of, of research. And I'm not here to take credit for all of it as being original research. I was benefited by some other bloggers who'd, who'd done research. Um, but I decided that I needed to, to put this all into a book that tells the story uh, of the hidden history. And when I say hidden history, it's not that it's so you know, deeply buried that anybody can't find it. It's just that it's buried under our traditions. And what, what we realize is that so much of what we believe in Mormonism today uh, was not what the early saints believed in the early 1830s. A lot of it, or almost all of it, is from the Nauvoo era. And it's been perpetuated by, by Brigham Young. And you know, over four generations uh, since Brigham, four or five uh, generations, it's been codified into this unassailable doctrine that the institution has to defend at all costs. It, instead of looking back and saying, okay, where did we get off the rails or, or, or what happened? Because we have this tradition that says, okay, further light and knowledge. We've just received further light and knowledge. Um, and yet that's not what the history really tells us. And so I wanted to tell that story. And the first half of the book is telling that story uh, of the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, which you know, the church believes happened, for example, in, in June of 1829. But Joseph himself said it happened in June of 1831, two years later. You know, why have we inherited this, this false narrative? And so I wanted to correct the record. And the Joseph Smith Papers Project for an amateur uh, historian like I am is a total boon to that. And I wanted to make sure that whatever I did was, was consistent with both the word of the Lord, the, you know, the scriptures, including the revelations that Joseph brought forth, and the history. And I've really tried to hew to that line and not, not speculate. Um, and so that story takes place in the you know, first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is more interpretive in discussing, all right, what does all this mean? If the first half of this book is true, based on the history and the scriptures, what does this mean for where we are as a people and as a church? Hmm. You know, I just, let's kind of get back to, let's go, even think about like at the very beginning, like what is your view of the first vision? What, 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 what transpired then? Um, well, as we know, there are multiple versions of that, but, but I don't see a huge inconsistency with that. Uh, Joseph described one personage, you know, seeing the Lord and, and looking for um, a remission of his sins. And um, when you realize that um, what I believe is the true doctrine. It's the, it's the doctrine that was believed in 1833-35. It's in the lectures on faith of, of a more Trinitarian sort of God. Then I don't see inconsistencies with that and later, later discussions of, you know, two personages. Um, because the lectures on faith teach that, you know, God the Father is a spirit and Jesus is a personage of tab tabernacle. 
basically God in the flesh. And Joseph himself taught that they look exactly alike. So the fact that that he describes it as one, you know, doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, the oneness of the father and the son. It's very interesting that that was kind of an early concept. And so as we're going through the 1820s, we're, uh, we're also talking about, you know, this is the period of time when Joseph was uh, dealing with getting the plates, but we also have the treasure digging uh, going on at the same time, kind of paralleling it at times. Um, what are your thoughts just on the on these tr the, the fact that he was a treasure digger, or do you think he was a treasure digger? And does that bother you when it comes to your um, your belief system? No, the Lord Himself says that He uses the weak things of the world to do His work, and I think it's really easy, and we see it in our society all the time, where we superimpose our modern day morality on the past and. I think until you walk a mile in somebody else's shoes and live in their particular time and life, we get very judgmental as a society on slave owners and, and others about the past. And, and I, think, I think that temptation, we have to be humble about not experiencing what those guys went through. And you know, the fact that, G, that Joseph was involved in treasure digging um, to me, that's a that's a small factor that people make way too much out of. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a, I, I encounter that from more and more faithful, even Orthodox, are accepting of a lot of that narrative, and it doesn't bother them. And I'm kind of getting a better understanding that as we study like the biblical prophets, these are flawed people too. And you know, people I I talk to people who, you know, like I get into arguments maybe with other Protestants who maybe believe a certain doctrine differently than I, where they'll say, well, if you die in your sins, uh, you're going to go to hell. But then I say, well, David literally died in bed with his sex slaves. <laughs> um, and, you know, but yet he was the apple of God's eye. And, and I think that sometimes when we look at um, the prophets in the Bible, they are flawed. And Joseph was in one sense flawed, but that doesn't mean that God can't use somebody like that. So I think that's something that's really got me thinking. Now, you also accept the fact that he used the stone in the head in the translation process as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. So basically, folks, as we're painting a picture here, somebody who you know basically has an orthodox view of the first vision, accepts the modern day scholarship about the, uh, the hist historical um, uh, time of Joseph Smith and the treasure digging, um, and uh, does accepts the, the narrative of what modern scholarship has told us about using the stone in the hat. So this is somebody who's very plugged in, knows his, has done his research, um, but is also um, a believer. And I think it's really important that we kind of set that up now. So, you, so can I stop you right there? Please do. I, I think you just have to be careful when you say believer. And okay. let me just define that for you. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Because some, somebody who, who is a, a believing Latter-day Saint, for example, would interpret that as believing that the church is everything that it claims to be. And I am absolutely a believer in the gospel as it is taught in the word of God. And you've read at least parts of my book, you realize that the conclusion that I come to there is that the saints were downgraded for disobedience, that we no longer have the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood. And so I don't want to, you to interpret that I believe that the church has all that it claims to have at this period of time. 
Well, and that's the interesting thing about your book is that you uh, you stake your claims, but you've done the research and you can actually, you document how you think this is actually how it transpired. Um, starting with just even some of the, the claims that the church made, like you said, with the, uh, you know, the uh, establishment of the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, we also, the reality is, is that, you know, as we're in early on in the church in the early days, uh, speak a little bit to the importance of Sidney Rigdon in the early days of the church. Gosh, here, here's a man who has been thrown under the bus by, by Brigham Young because Brigham needed to move him aside to step into the role that Brigham wanted to assume. Because after Joseph's death, Sidney was the only documented individual alive who had been ordained a prophet, seer, and revelator by a prophet, seer, and revelator. And when Sidney was called, uh, and he met the missionaries in late 1830, um, the, the Lord called him to a very special role, including, and I think this is in section 35, if my memory serves me correctly, to prove Joseph's words, to call upon the holy prophets to prove Joseph's words. And so we learned from that section that, that Joseph couldn't just make stuff up. Sidney was there to call on the prophets, to call on the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament, um, the scriptures to prove Joseph's words. And so Sidney had this very unique role um, with Joseph. And there are more revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants addressed to Sidney than to any other person except for Joseph. And, um, you know, Joseph actually said that Sidney was to step into his shoes if he were to depart. Now, towards the end, um, Sidney did not, did not prove Joseph's Nauvoo doctrines. I mean, this should be a big red flag that I talk about in the book that the doctrines that were introduced, including the, the temple endowment, including the, the sealing ordinances that are associated with marriage, the spiritual wife doctrine, um, none of that Sidney proved. And um, that's where Joseph supposedly said, and this is where when you dig into the history, you realize that, that Brigham Young put his spin on it. Um, you know, the history of the church says that, that Joseph said, well, you've put Sydney on my back because at a particular um, conference there was a trial and people voted to keep Sydney in there. I mean, this was back in the days when they actually voted on things, where there was actually a voice in the church to decide who their leaders were and how they were going to run the church. And the church voted to keep Sydney. And supposedly Joseph said, You've put him on me, but you, I've cast him off my back, but you've put me back on him. I'm sorry, you've, you've put him back on me. And this is all after the fact, Brigham Young emendation to the history to make Sidney look bad. So it's really clear that, that our history has been changed for the purposes of, of bolstering Brigham's claims and destroying anybody else's. Um, and that becomes really clear when you dig into history. Maybe you've seen the same thing, but I have an entire appendix in my book. It's not very long, but it gives examples of how um, Sidney's been disparaged by, by Brigham and his acolytes. I think uh, Stephen Shields, who's, I believe, wrote a book about the different groups, the history of all the different groups within, in, in the uh, 
restoration. And he refers it to it, I think, along the lines as the Smith-Rigdon movement uh, to describe. Uh, so if you if people want to understand that, you know, Sidney Rigdon was very, very important that even people recognize today that when they study it, the Sidney Rigdon was so important in the early days of the church and was very, very influential. Uh, he was a Campbellite minister. Um, so he was part of what is what in my actually we call them restorationists within uh, Protestantism, the Church of Christ, uh, Churches of Christ, Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Those came out of the Barton Stone, uh, the Campbell, Alexander Campbell movement. And that is the movement that uh, Sidney Rigdon came out of. And so he was very influential in the idea of a restoration, uh, setting up the church in a particular way. Uh, much of what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is today, or a lot of the initial groundwork that was set up was because of Sidney's influence, because he knew how to build a church, because he had built the church and had laid a foundation. So essentially, um, Joseph was the kind of the kind of just kind of melded together. But but when it comes to church organization, Sidney was just so important. And I think people need to be aware of that of his important role that he played early on. Right, and in those early days, Sidney was the one who would preach all the time. I mean, uh, you know, my my reading of the description of his sermons is that they were so eloquent that he would have people in tears uh, in many cases, just he, he was an amazing man from, with, with a lot of talents. Now, you know, that's not to, to lionize him, um, you know, like anybody else, he had his faults. You know, he, he got on, on the crazy train sometimes in his preaching, you know, just over the top rhetoric, um, but, Here's a very capable man that that the Lord had prepared, I believe, um, to do what he did. And um, you know, it's unfortunate to see people say, "Oh, he he apostatized." You know, he didn't follow Brigham, so he apostatized. And I, I've heard that in the LDS Church before. And, and uh, knowing what I know now, it just makes me cringe that people don't recognize what a great man he was. Yeah, and you know, he did have a lot of traumatic things happen to him, which would explain some of the issues, like. A lot, of, a lot of people don't realize that the idea of an extermination order was, we talk about Governor Boggs, but Sidney Rigdon actually brought up the idea of a, an extermination order in one yeah. of his uh, sermons, and that's what caused the response from Governor Boggs to use that pr precise terminology. Right. The salt sermon. I mean, yeah. he, he preached the salt sermon in, in Missouri in 1838, and, uh, you know, I... I give context as to what was going on in the history in my book so we can understand what was happening at that point in time. I mean, that was that was a dark time for the church with the Danites and the Mormon-Missouri War, believing that God was going to protect them. Um, but they were going after their enemies. You know, from my point of view, they were ceasing to act like true Christians. And I think that's where they ran into trouble. So I got in my hands here a Book of Mormon from the Church of Jesus Christ, and this is the church that arose out of the ashes of Sidney's attempt to uh, replicate the, the church in the Pittsburgh area. And the reason I bring this up is because I just love this church. They're awesome people, um, and I love, I love them very much. All they have is the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and Jesus, and uh, I think they're a tremendous uh, organization. I just want you to talk a little bit about what kind of book 
in your estimation, is the Book of Mormon and contrast that to what you feel is has become of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? So as we've discussed, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in the Book of Mormon. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, regardless of some of the historicity questions, um, it preaches the doctrine of Christ. And um, it's one of the reasons that Sidney, I think, very quickly joined forces with Joseph Smith was because he recognized the consistency with the New Testament, Jesus, and the Jesus that's taught in the Book of Mormon. And, um, you know, there have been, there've been podcasts about the born-again Book of Mormon. If you, if you read in the Book of Mormon, there are examples of people being born again in very short order. And it just pains me to hear speeches, uh, talks in general conference that, that tell us that we should, oh, you know, those are, those are outliers. They're not things that we should expect. Um, and I've heard those talks in general conference, but I, I've got to believe the Book of Mormon because it is very consistent with the New Testament Jesus. And one of the, one of the most important parts of the Book of Mormon Stephen, I believe, is chapter 11 of 3rd Nephi, where the Lord um, clearly outlines what his doctrine is. Faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost. And then he makes a very clear statement. He says, more or less than this comes of evil. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not going to be a surprise to your listeners that um, you know, within four months of publishing this book, I published it in March, uh, March 13th of this year, 2021. And at the end of June, I was excommunicated from the church. I was kicked out. And um, it was really a sad affair because I tried to get my ecclesiastical leaders, my, my bishop and my stake president to actually read the book and have a, an adult discussion based on the history and the scriptures. And they were unwilling to do that. They jumped straight to some of my conclusions at the end of the book and said, you're not preaching what the brethren are preaching, so you're out of here unless you pull the book. And I said, look, reason with me via the scriptures. Uh, I actually had uh, not really a close friend, an acquaintance that I had gotten to really appreciate because he taught gospel doctrine in my ward for a while. And we loved the scriptures. We, we shared this love of the scriptures. And when he found out that I was going to be on trial, he actually, unbeknownst to me, wrote a letter of support and sent it to all the high councilmen and to the stake president. And it was very eloquently written. Um, you know, he quoted Joseph Smith, where, you know, early on, Joseph says, uh, because he's being persecuted by all these, all these ministers, he said, if they thought that I was deluded, they should have tried to reclaim me in a Christian-like manner and show me where I'm off base. I mean, I'm paraphrasing Joseph's words here. I don't have it, you know, right in front of me. Um, but, but this individual quoted that, and it's like, that's exactly how I feel, right? If, if I'm off base, then reason with the scriptures with me, but not with the philosophies of men. Um, so... Anyway, I, that's, that's done. It's over with. It's been uh, a month and a half. 
uh, well, two months, a little over two months. Um, so anyway, I, I got us off on a tangent. No, that's fine. You Actually, reel I, me back. I was going to ask you about your excommunication um, anyhow, but I just want to know, how are you processing that now? What's your, how do you feel right now about everything that happened and, and how are you adapting to this new reality? Well, um, I'll tell you, the Lord told me a long time ago that I was going to get excommunicated. So, you know, mentally, I was somewhat prepared for it, but I wasn't really prepared for the emotions associated with the whole experience. And I, I think more than anything, I walked away from it. Uh, I mean, initially, I was a little bit angry, okay, because I, I thought it was just a a hatchet job. Okay. Um, I realized that that's, that's not constructive. I did actually write a letter back to, uh, to the stake president, you know, after, after the trial and at the end of the trial, they went and they deliver deliberated and they announced that I was getting kicked out. And he said, I'm going to write you a letter, you know, telling me that I can't pay my tithing. I can't wear my temple garments. I can't, you know, all the restrictions associated with that. Um, and, at the end of it, he said, you know, Taylor, you're running with the wrong crowd. I'm like, do you even know what crowd I'm running with? Um, you know, as if he, he had made this assumption. And, and even before they deliberated, he said, oh, I know what you're preaching is of the devil. And I'm like, it's based on scripture and it's based on history. Um, but you've taken, I mean, he wouldn't read it. He would not read it. Neither would my bishop. There were two men that he had assigned in the high council to read it, who read it. Um, one was a, a former stake president and a former mission president. And, um, but in, anyway, I, I did send off what I would consider a somewhat snarky response to it, which was like, look, um, I wish you well, but, you know, until you're willing to actually believe scriptures, you know, I, I basically hope that you'll wake up at some point. Um, and that was just therapeutic for me. But um, I think more therapeutic was the fact that that some guys, and they're all Mormons to one extent or another, um, I ride motorcycle with them. And, uh, you know, we, we just accept each other where we're at. Nobody's judgmental. We're, we're just good friends, you know, having, having a good time and, and doing the best we can. And so um, when I'm telling them this story, we, we get together for lunch on Fridays a lot of times. And, and I told them that the state president told me, Taylor, you're running with the wrong crowd. And, and one guy goes, that's it. That's what we're going to name ourselves, the wrong crowd. <laughs> and, and, so, and so I don't know that the state president knows this yet, um, but he was the one who named our motorcycle crew. <laughs> we are the wrong crowd. <laughs> perhaps he was a bit prophetic. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. But again, you know, that's, that's where you just, you set aside the dogma and you just, try to be Christ-like and support each other. And I felt totally supported and loved and appreciated by those guys. And it's, it's been really good for me. I'm glad. It's good that you are, have a support system that's there. And that's really awesome for you because a lot of people will take this journey and it's a very lonely one. And you have the support systems able to do it. You know, one of the things about the Book of Mormon is that in and of itself, it does, it does 
definitely rely, uh, in many ways, it complements and relies on the New Testament. Um, much of the doctrine is very the same. I would have very little quibble with it as an evangelical. As a matter of fact, I tell evangelicals, don't be afraid of the Book of Mormon. There's very little Mormonism in the Book of Mormon in that context. And one of the most interesting things is not only when you and I had a conversation, you had told me about how evangelical of a book the Book of Mormon is. And I would say, you're right on about that. And then we'd also then discuss my friend Christopher Thomas's book, A Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon. And he brings out um, through his knowledge of Pentecostalism that there's some like really important Pentecostal doctrines that are taught in the Book of Mormon that predate Azusa Street, which was the Pentecostal uh, movement uh, that started in 1906 and now has since grown to be a half billion, half billion member, if you will, or people that are practicing uh, this in this movement of speaking in tongues and signs and wonders and healing and uh, a lot of the things that were very similar to the early days of the restoration as well. Um, and so this document was very influential in the early days of the early church. And I will have to tell you that the early days of the early church, I find to be very accessible as an evangelical. Now I'm an outsider, so some things are more familiar to me and some things make me feel more comfortable and other things are different. And so I, I kind of uh, just kind of trying to process all these different things and see where things went. But these early days of the church, we saw a lot of what um, was described as how churches are supposed to operate in the Book of Mormon. Those are in the early days of the church. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I mean, if I'm going to write another book, it's going to be all the ways the LDS movement um, doesn't follow their own scriptures because, you know, the, the Book of Mormon talks about how our meetings are supposed to be according to the spirit. Uh, our meetings are supposed, are not supposed to be pre-organized or pre-canned or with talks that have been prepared for six months in advance. There's, according to the Book of Mormon, they're supposed to be spontaneous according to the spirit. And that's the way the churches are to operate. And and, um, you know, it gives the opportunity for the spirit to move on people uh, instead of being well organized. Um, and, and that's what the Lord teaches. Um, I joke that, that Mormons don't believe the Book of Mormon because the Book, the Book of Mormon uh, condemns them in many, in many aspects. Uh, you know, the Book of Isaiah, for example, is, is so not understood by by members of the church and it's because we don't see ourselves in those words we see them as not applying to us and and yet you know when nephi says um you love to adorn your churches more than you love the poor and the needy i i can't see how we can't be indicted by that based on all the money that we spend on on these magnificent palaces that we claim are the houses of houses of the lord um and of course, my book gives a context for understanding why those Nauvoo doctrines are more of a curse than actual, actually a blessing. Because when you realize that the Lord in the early 1830s brought forth his law, it included, he called it the law of the celestial kingdom, it included monogamy, it included you know, loving your neighbor, all the things that you would find in the doctrine of Christ, as well as the law of consecration, which we find in the Book of Mormon, you know, third Nephi, fourth Nephi, where the people had all things common and they lived in peace. Uh, that's a consistent doctrine also in the New Testament. 
um, the early apostles taught that that was the doctrine of Christ. Um, and yet when the early saints attempted to live that, they failed. And what very few members of the church realize is that, that Jesus, you know, at least for a period of time, took his name out of the church, um, became the church of the Latter-day Saints. Um, and so that was, that was the beginning of the downgrade. And then in 1841, you have, you have the Lord saying that he does not have a place where he can come and restore that which he hath taken away or that which has been lost unto you, even the fullness of the priesthood. So by 1841, three years before Joseph is killed, the Lord is saying that the Melchizedek priesthood is not on the earth. And yet there's no place in, in Mormon scripture or history or anything where we document that the Lord said, okay, you've got it back again. Um, and both physically and metaphorically, the saints ended up in the wilderness um, of Utah. So, you know, these, these things, the church has spun this as, oh, well, we got persecuted. And so we had to go from here to there. And we ended up in Utah because of persecution. And that's not what the Lord said. The Lord said it was because of jarrings and contentions and not being obedient that you ended up in Utah. Um, in Missouri, he said you'd never cease to prevail if you're obedient. Uh, in Nauvoo, he said you would not be moved out, out of your place. And so just looking at the words of the Lord and putting it within the context of history brings a lot of clarity to actually what happened. But let me answer your question. I, I kind of did a roundabout in history. Um, those early years of the church, 1830, 1831, 1832, 33, this is, this is the point in time when the Lord uh, gave so many revelations. Most of the revelations in our Doctrine and Covenants happened during that time period. There were a few in 1834, and then there's a precipitous drop-off uh, of revelation, and you have to ask yourself, why is that? Well, when you realize that the spike in revelation in 1831 was associated with the Lord bringing forth his law and the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood, and then the drop-off in 1834 was because he had taken his name out of the church. It, it just explains a lot when you understand that history and, and our traditions have completely covered this up. Um, but, you know, the, the Book of Mormon has the doctrine of Christ, that evangelical, a, a church with the, with the spirit, a, a church with 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 the tongues and, you know, all these gifts of the spirit that I'll just objectively observe that, you know, I've never seen that in the LDS church. Um, it's almost as if we treat these experiences being so sacred that we can't talk about it. But, you know, if, if an apostle has seen Jesus, I don't see why he shouldn't tell us you know, King Benjamin had no problem saying, oh, an angel went and talked to me last night, and here's exactly what he told, uh, told me to say, you know, in the book of Mosiah. Um, Paul and Peter and John and all of those apostles of the New Testament, they were witnesses to Christ, and they were boldly testifying that they'd seen him, the resurrected Christ. And so I see no reason to conclude why that pattern shouldn't con continue today. Um, and and so, you know, that's just another piece of evidence that says, hey, we're, 
we're kind of off the off the rails. You know, if we think that that miracles are generators coming on, you know, at just the right time, that's that's all that scriptures talk about a, a real miracle being. You know, and this is the thing you talk about how early on, basically, it's stated very pretty emphatically that at this point in the early days of the church, the church has the fullness of the gospel. Right. And the Lord says it right in the Doctrine and Covenants. He says, blessed are you for accepting my fullness. And, you know, you can't be more full. <laughs> if you're up to the brim on your cup, you can't put more in it. And, and yet, you know, even today, the covenant path, the restoration is still unfolding. You know, any little change is part of the restoration. Uh, and yet we had the fullness and we rejected it. Right. And, and one of the things I talk about in my book is that the ancient children of Israel had the exact same thing happen to them. Moses tried to get the children of Israel to, to see the face of God, to prepare to have that happen. And they failed. And what was the consequence? That Moses was taken out of their midst and the holy priesthood was taken out of their midst. And this is discussed in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And if you take Joseph and substitute his name for Moses in section 84, where, it, where it's talking about that, I think it's the exact same pattern that happened to the Latter-day Saints. And so right around this time, because they rejected the fullness of the gospel, this caused, now this is kind of probably a thing that's quite controversial, because essentially around 1834, you believe that Joseph became a fallen prophet. Is that correct? Well, I think, or he was in the process he, of falling. He was in the process. I mean, there's in in Isaiah, and um, more clarity is brought in in Second Nephi, where it talks about how um, the eyes of the seers are covered because of the iniquity of the people, and so you can think of prophets as being a reflection of the people, and so. Around that time, to me, I just have to um, apply the law of witnesses and, and scrutinize any teaching of Joseph's that's not consistent with Scripture, with previously revealed Scripture. Um, you know, because the Lord is not, I don't believe the Lord is a liar. I don't, I don't think that he's going to um, give us a doctrine and then give us something that's completely opposite, right? I, I don't believe he's going to give us the lectures on faith um, as the true doctrine and then turn around and say, no, just kidding. I, I really am a celestial polygamist with a body who was once a man. You know, they're, they're incompatible doctrines. You cannot believe both at the same time. Um, the Book of Mormon, for example, never says anything about needing sacred secret knowledge to get back to heaven you know you, you doesn't say anything about needing a handshake or a password or a sign or anything like that and yet um you know we believe that that you do we're taught that you do i don't believe it anymore but um we're taught that you do and and in fact the book of mormon actually contradicts parts of parts of the endowment where it says you know, we're, we're taught that you have to give this secret knowledge to, to people along the way, you know, to angels along the way back to heaven. And, 
And the and I think it's Second Nephi nine. I may have this wrong, but um, it says the keeper of the gate is a holy one of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. Right. So I mean, that's a direct challenge to to the temple endowment, mm -hmm. for example. So you know, my my thesis really is that that um, and it's one of the reasons why I entitled the book Joseph in the Gap is is that uh, like Moses, Joseph stood in the gap before the Lord to turn back his anger at a people who had rejected the higher law, who had rejected their God, in essence. And, um, you know, we, in the LDS church, we've been indoctrinated, thoroughly indoctrinated from when you're a little kid, you know, follow the prophet, follow the prophet, follow, don't go astray. The implication is if you if you don't follow the prophet, you're going astray. And we've been taught that they will never lead us astray. And yet there are numerous examples in scripture where prophets have been used to test people, to see if they'll stay true to what they've already received, or if they can be seduced into following corrupt practices and corrupt doctrines. And um, you know, that's completely lost on, on the LDS at this point. Um, you look at their website, you know, we're promised that if we follow, follow the prophets, then, you know, that's where safety lies. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. That's for me, a construct of men. And so, you know, back to the question, did Joseph become a fallen prophet? Um, I mean, I do have a, chapter in my book called Fallen True Prophet, and Joseph himself said this, he said, my apostate enemies say that I have been a true prophet, and I had rather be a fallen true prophet than a false prophet, and, and so yes, I believe that he was a true prophet, and then he was also a fallen prophet, and he had a, a unique role to actually test the people to see if they would stay true to the light and knowledge that they had received, or if they could be seduced into polygamy, for example, or into believing that you needed, you know, secret knowledge. And if you look at those doctrines that come out of Nauvoo, a lot of the problems that people have today with regards to the church are Nauvoo-era problems, polygamy, you know, the questioning about the temple endowment. Um, the teachings about sealing, um, you know, back in Brigham Young's day, it, it was like the ultimate multi-level celestial marketing scheme, right? Go, go get as many people as you possibly can sealed unto you so you can have a bigger kingdom in the next world. Uh, Wilford Woodruff, I think, got sealed to 300 people. Um, you know, we don't, we don't practice that today, but was that a true doctrine or not? All of that came out of Nauvoo. All of that came out of polygamy. Well, and now there might be some people that say, well, what about section 132? Um, that would have taken place. I, now I know you talk about this in your book that it would have been while Joseph was still a true prophet. Um, what's your take on section 132 and when it was maybe put together? Well, so Section 132 was never canonized while Joseph was alive. There was an 1844 version of the Doctrine and Covenants that was in preparation right around the time that he got killed. And there was, he was never going to 
there's no indication that he had a revelation that was written down that he was going to canonize in 1844. So what we do have is a supposed copy of that revelation by an avowed polygamist, Joseph Kingsbury, that became uh, what was given to the saints um, 1850, what year was that? I'm not going to remember it, but Brigham Young brought it forth. It's when he came out of the closet in Utah as black practicing polygamy. That's when he published this and said, this is the revelation that Joseph received. There are so many contradictions with other scripture in that particular section that I dedicate an entire appendix in my book to analysis of section 132. And it's not going to surprise you to, that I find it you know, just more in Brigham's tone. You know, there have been word studies that show that it's probably Brigham's writing. Um, it, it violates so many things. It violates the law of witnesses. Um, where's the second witness to this as true doctrine? All true doctrine, I believe, is going to be found in at least a couple of different places. And that's, that's what the Lord teaches us. Um, it introduces a new concept of exaltation concept of exaltation is nowhere in any other scripture. Uh, it redefines the new and everlasting covenant, which back in the 1830s was baptism, and now it's become a marriage covenant. So there are just so many problems with section 132 that um, I believe was conveniently produced by Brigham to justify polygamy. I can't yeah. draw any other conclusion. You, you, one of the, I think from my understanding, doing my, doing my research, one of the main reasons that led to your excommunication was chapter 19, when you right. basically said the whole temple, the, the, all the temple rituals, the endowment, the ceilings, all these kind of things are just, you just have, you don't accept them at all. And, and, and of course, that when my friend Nathan, he said, yeah, I can totally see why they are saying he's out of here uh, after. <laughs> well, let, let me just clarify what you said. Okay? Yeah, please do. Um, because, and I, I'm going to pull it up just because I think it's that important while we're talking here. But um, the Lord tells us what a temple is for. Okay. He does this in Doctrine and Covenants section 124, verse 35. I think it might be 38. I'm going to, I'm pulling it up. Okay. Uh, 39, actually. 124, 39. So there are, there are legitimate purposes for a temple, all right? So I don't want you to lead anybody to believe that, that it's just, you know, all of it's bunk, okay? The endowment, the temple endowment ceremony, absolutely. I mean, I entitled that section of my book, Strong Delusion, for a reason. Um, but the Lord says this in section 124.39, Verily I say unto you that your anointings and your washings and your baptisms for the dead and your solemn assemblies and your memorials for your sacrifices by the sons of Levi and for your oracles in your most holy places wherein you receive conversations and your statutes and judgments for the beginning of the revelations and foundation of Zion and for glory, honor, and endowment of all her municipals are ordained by the ordinance of my holy house, which my people are always commanded to build up unto my holy name. And so washings, anointings, baptism for the dead, solemn assemblies, um, you know, receiving revelation, you know, oracles, uh, all of that is legitimate in a temple. 
Okay, and if you think about what the temple in Kirtland was like, um, the elders were believing that they were going to go and preach the gospel for the last time in power, and they needed this endowment of spiritual power. It was a spiritual endowment. It wasn't a secret knowledge endowment. It was a spiritual endowment. And in 1841, when the Lord is giving section 124, he's saying this is legit, okay? But there are two things that are conspicuously absent from this particular description of what goes on in the temple. There's nothing here for a, a wedding. There's no marriage mentioned. And there's no necessity of having secret knowledge. Okay. Um, it talks about endowment of all her municipals, but you know, there's nothing at, about you know, uh, what we do today. Um, and I believe that to be a spiritual endowment, similar to what happened in Kirtland, not one with secret information. So, so I just don't want you to characterize as, you know, the temple is all bunk. No, it's legit. This is what the Lord has said. And, and I think one of the things that's unique about, it shouldn't even really be unique, but, but I believe the scriptures, unless they're like demonstrably false, like section 132. Now, some people may take umbrage of that, but read my appendix. I mean, there, there are so many things wrong with that, that, um, and, you know, I believe Joseph brought forth a revelation. You know, William Law said, you better own this whole thing as being from hell, buddy, because it's wrong. Um, it's inconsistent. Uh, and by, jo by William Law's recount of it, whatever he presented to the Nauvoo uh, City Council, or I think it was the High Council, was much shorter than what we have in Section 132. But, you know, again... True doctrine always has multiple witnesses, and this one stands on his own and is highly suspect in my in my view. Um, so, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you um, was Joseph actually plays a very important role in the latter days uh, that I want to want to talk to you a little bit about because there's almost like a uh, the story take, kind of takes it. There's a twist in your in your uh, hypothesis, if you will, because uh, and, and one of the things that I find interesting is first of all, I just want to ask you a question: Why would a fallen prophet, as he's crossing the banks of the Mississippi, why would he turn around? Um, you know. Again, this unique role that Joseph plays, uh, you know, I wouldn't focus too much on the fallen part of that. I think he introduced some of these doctrines to test the saints, uh, and he definitely lost the spirit uh, in many cases. But he, he also preached some things that I think are absolutely true in Nauvoo. He talked about the three levels of the priesthood. Again, very consistent with other scripture. He talked about the Melchizedek and the patriarchal and the ironic. We never talk about the patriarchal. Um, I address that somewhat in, in the book. Um, I think he just loved the saints. You know, he, he's a guy like anybody else with an ego. I think that's what prevented him from actually admitting that he was wrong with regards to some of these doctrines. Um, and I wish I could get into his head and ask him what he was going through. Um, I look forward to that someday. 
and this is the other thing that completely blew me up. I'd never heard this before. And Nathan and I talked about it, but basically you believe that Joseph, as well as a few other people, will play a role in the end days and will be resurrected. Would you like to talk about that for a minute? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, this is so see. cool. This is just really unique stuff. And that's why I find it. I want people to think outside of the box, have different ideas, but still are faithful in many ways to Joseph, the Book of Mormon. Um, right. And, and you've you got an interesting take on it. And I just wanted you to share that with my audience. Sure. I mean, I, I write an entire chapter in my book called The Return of the Servants. And, um, you know, when you believe the revelations, um, you know, the, the Lord in section 101 tells us how Zion is going to be redeemed. And he talks about this servant who is going to go gather other servants and Zion is going to be redeemed. And he doesn't identify who that servant is until section 103. And then in section 103, he says that that servant is Joseph Smith. And when you believe what the Lord says, basically, in, the, in section one of, of Doctrine and Covenants, he says, um, uh, he talks about, um, oh, gosh, am I going to find it here? He says, these commandments are true and faithful, and the promises and prophecies are all going to be fulfilled. And, you know, he talks about his servants going forth, and they're not going to be hindered in, um, in gathering up the people and leading them to Zion, in binding up the law and sealing up the testimony. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you, when I... When you do as many word searches as I've done in scripture and, and link these concepts together, you see over and over again these same promises. And I either have to believe that the Doctrine and Covenants is, is bunk uh, and the Lord doesn't mean what he says, or in my case, I chose to believe it. And, and when I believe it, then a lot of things fall into place. Um, Joseph received a patriarchal blessing at the hands of Oliver Cowdery that talk about him going forth and not being hindered. Joseph has a prophetic dream about his farm and his barn, of going back to seeing his farm and his barn, and they're dilapidated. And I think those are metaphors for the church. Um, interest, and interestingly enough, also the Lord says that he will send his servants again. You know, so these little hints in in the text that point to future work. Um, and then Brigham Young, Harley P. Pratt, these apostles in Joseph's day actually believed that Joseph was going to return. Um, so, you know, we never hear about that in the church. And I think it's really easy to just dismiss that and say, ah, you know, no, he's, he's not coming back. But when you choose to line up all the evidence, and, you know, that's why I think my book would be really valuable to a lot of people, because they can read the evidence and decide for themselves. I mean, I, I did not want to make this book, you know, five inches uh, as a tome that somebody couldn't read. But um, as you probably found out, every, every chapter has multiple references to scripture, uh, to history. Um, it's enough evidence to get people thinking like, wow, maybe this could happen. 
I just find that your story takes this this arc, you know, and it's it's almost a circle where it's a cycle where we have the beginning of the restoration, we have the fullness of the gospel, we have a prophet who begins a, a fall, we have a uh, rituals and things that are added on, works that are added on to the church. We then have a prophet who still a prophet but maybe a fallen prophet i guess you know is, is how you see it who at the very end of the story decides to turn back and essentially knows that that will be lead probably to his martyrdom and then the almost i, I hate to use the word redemption but the redemptive aspect of it is that you have joseph at the very end will still play a major role in the end days and that everything that was supposed to be done will be done and everything will be fulfilled as talked about in the doctrines and covenants it's an interesting story you put together and it's an interesting um it, it's kind of beautiful in the way that you told the story and I, I think it's just a very unique way of looking at joseph uh it's a different way um i just want to encourage my audience to at least consider this book because it is a valuable resource and he he's a, he's gives just interesting concepts and, and it's well documented in, in like you, the, the appendix on 132. I, I did read that and I thought that was really good. And another thing I want to say, authors, um, when you send me books, can you do me a favor and sign them for me uh, like Taylor did? Uh, because I have to fly to Salt Lake City and I hate to have to take a bunch of books of unsigned books to take them to the authors to sign them. It's a lot easier if you could sign them for me and then send them to me. <laughs> Well, the one thing you didn't mention, Stephen, which I think is going to be a shock to a lot of people, you know, we've been indoctrinated to believe that the restoration happened. Well, you know, if you look at the verbiage, yeah. what Joseph brought forth was a foundational work, okay? And I present evidence that the restoration has yet to happen, that the restoration is regaining the lost Melchizedek priesthood that, that we've been downgraded from. Mm. Uh, to a lesser priesthood, and it's getting back to that power that, that we've lost as a people. And again, that's all laid out in the book. So um, radical ideas, perhaps, for the indoctrinated mind, but scriptural concepts and, and concepts that are consistent with history. Uh, and obviously, I believe it or I wouldn't have written the book. And, but the reason I wrote it is that, is that this can be so um, challenging to, to the mind that has been taught to think one way, that I wanted to, to write something that could be read in, you know, it's 300 and some pages, but it's not a, a tough read. I mean, I've had people say, hey, I, I went through that in two days. Uh, it, was, it was fascinating. Um, so you can just kind of change your landscape, change your roadmap of how you look at the restoration and um, and not look at it the way we've been just totally indoctrinated to, to think about things. So hopefully your, your listeners will find it interesting. Well, I like to have interesting people on my program, and you're a very interesting person. And I just want to thank you so much, uh, uh, Taylor, for coming on. And I just want to remind my audience to uh, like and subscribe and hit the uh, notification bell uh, so that you'll be notified when the new episode comes out. I will provide a link in the description so that you're able to uh, purchase this book. Uh, Taylor Drake, uh, thank you so much for coming on. And I just want to know if you have any final words for my audience. Um, gosh, you know, it, evangelicals, Mormons, 
you know, the gospel is, is the good news and it's beautiful. And, you know, we, we may debate certain things, but, but the core principles of the gospel are what to me make me happy. And the more I adhere to those, the better a person I am and the better off the world's going to be. So I'm glad we can have these discussions and thank you very much for arranging this, Stephen. Well, thank you. And I just want to thank my audience and, uh, Taylor, you have yourself a great day. And audience, we're going to get through this uh, epidemic uh, and, and we'll return to normal one day soon, hopefully. Have yourself a wonderful day and Godspeed.